But I can I can start talking a little bit while they're working on this, and we'll see what happens. So welcome to clinical updates in tuberculosis. Um, my name is Eric McLaughlin. I am a family medicine doctor, and I uh, have lived in Africa since 2009 in areas where I do a lot of tuberculosis management on the ground. So uh, the clinical updates in tuberculosis is an interesting sort of topic title. I did not choose it. The conference organizers asked me if I would. Generally, I hope to direct this towards uh, on-the-ground in Africa application, um, which is not only what I'm kind of more experienced with myself, but I think is probably more relevant to this particular context. So how about I s uh, start with that for, for you guys. How many of you um, uh, How many of you are in nursing? People in nursing? How many of you are physicians? All right, so I guess the TV talk draws a lot. How many of you are in other kind of like... Uh, PT, OT, public health, other lines of health professionals? Pharmacy. Okay, pharmacy, yeah. Okay, anyone uh, that's still in training or everyone kind of done? Okay. Um, and how many of you have been uh, on the ground in the developing world hospital treating tuberculosis before? So that gives me a good feel. It's a fairly... It's not as heterogeneous as it could be, actually. Do you mind wearing the microphone? No, I don't. And I can use, if I want, I'll use this mic here. Okay, so um, while this is up and as it's coming and going, we'll see how it goes. So a little bit more, just enough biocontext for you to know kind of who I am, a missionary with, with Surge. I live in... Uh, Burundi, which is right there, at a place called Kibuye Hope Hospital, which is in the rural interior of the country. And so the unique thing about this hospital is that though it's in a really rural place, it's the remote uh, primary university teaching site for a Burundian um, with the result that though we're in a very urban environment, we have usually about 60 medical students that are rotating with us at any given time. So there's a lot of education that's going on there. Um, Burundi is, uh, on, a, on a national level, is, is, is currently ranked as the poorest country in the world. And, and generally, if there's a lack of infrastructure somewhere, uh, we usually have the lack of infrastructure there in Burundi. So that's something that I have quite a bit of experience with and the ways that that influences tuberculosis uh, treatment as well. Uh, we did live in Kenya at Tenwick Hospital for the first two years. And then when we decided we were going to go to Burundi long term, then we needed to kind of do support raising and preparatory stuff, and then we went to France for a year of language school, and we've been in Brindy now for eight years. In terms of TB experience, um, these years in Kenya and years in Burundi, uh, both of them TB has been one of the consistently most common diagnoses that, uh, that I have been having, and both of those places are characterized by uh, limited diagnostic capacity, uh, especially in Burundi. And they've been a little interesting as contrast in my mind because most of the tuberculosis that I was treating in, in Kenya was associated with HIV. And Burundi, for reasons that I don't fully understand, has significantly less HIV than some of the countries around there. So I don't have up-to-date numbers on this, but when I was in Kenya, it was about 9% uh, HIV seropositive uh, kind of across the board, and Burundi is more like 2%. Uh, and so we see a lot of we, we do see HIV-associated uh, tuberculosis, but most of the TB that we see is definitely not in HIV populations. Um, and these are all pictures of various HIV patients that I have treated over the years. And uh, in addition to that, in terms of formal stuff, in 2012, I did do the Johns Hopkins Summer Institute of Tropical Medicine, one of a number of kind of diploma programs in tropical medicine that are offered 
around the world, uh, of which TV made it's about probably about a quarter of what we talked about there. So that would be kind of the formal instruction part of that. Uh, this is the questions that you guys already answered, and I wanted to kind of get a feel a bit for who you guys are and uh, who it is that I'm talking to today. I feel sad that the question might have been because of my adapter. This is like a new adapter, but I'm happy that this is looking better. Um, so we're going to talk just a little bit about epidemiology for the purposes of setting the stage of the importance of the discussion, and then um, I do want to talk a bit about diagnoses, uh, changes in, in diagnostic methods, and, and treatment updates, and then there's a couple of cases at the end. Again, uh, even with a group of uh, mostly physicians, but people from a number of different disciplines, um, knowing where you're at to kind of take you where, where we're going will be a little interesting to see, but we'll, we'll try to hit it somewhere in the middle, and then uh, I think we should have a good bit of time at the end for other questions and discussions, which could be a chance for me to respond to questions, but it could also be very likely that a number of you have a lot of experience that you could also share with other people in the in the room as well. No. Just got taken out with the adapter. No. Okay, so why medical missions should make you care about tuberculosis? Um, I always think of in this, and, and I don't know if any of you know Steve Willing. He's a radiologist that um, it, I, don't, I haven't seen him this year, but he's often at this event. And I remember him coming to Tenwick, and like just you know the mantra of his talk was like TB is the most infection common in the world, or the most in, in common infection in the world. TB is the most common infection in the world, and that's always really stuck with me, um, and it kind of makes you look look around there. So. About 2 billion people are estimated uh, worldwide to be infected with TB, which makes about 25% of the global population. Now, in the United States, and we know a good bit about this because we do a whole lot of screening for latent TB infection, we do not have anywhere close to 25% of the population that's infected with TB. So, you know, playing your laws of averages, I, I estimate that when I'm in Burundi, probably 50% or more of the people that I'm taking care of uh, are positive for TB. All right. So the big distinction that everyone needs to keep in mind here with tuberculosis is the distinction between infection uh, and disease. So most people with TB infection uh, do not have and will not develop uh, TB disease uh, in their lifetime. Um, you have kind of this cycle that once TB is, is there, some people turn into a primary infection uh, and some people turn into latent infection, which could reactivate uh, later in life, potentially in the circumstances of something that makes them relatively immunodepressed. Uh, numbers for that, and we can kind of skip down to this bullet point here. And this varies a little bit, but um, we can use as a ballpark number that there's generally about a 10% lifetime risk if you have TB infection of converting to tuberculosis disease, so 90% of people wouldn't be. Now, what changes that? The big thing that changes that is HIV. Uh, so when someone is infected, uh, is immunodepressed because of HIV, then you go from a 10% lifetime risk to maybe 7% annual risk, which adds... Uh, for converting from um, TB infection to TB disease. So latent TB infection, and this will come in a little bit later when we're talking, um, has a higher, a lot higher chance of turning into tuberculosis disease. Yeah. Uh, I really like this graph up here. I think it's fascinating. I got this from Hopkins years ago. So this is, if you can't see it, this is 1840. So this is timeline all the way to 1960. And so 1950-ish is kind of like the debut of the anti- TB antibiotic era when we started having effective drugs to treat tuberculosis. And you can see how the historical, this historical decline of tuberculosis is just incredible. And all of this was pre, uh, pre-treatment with antibiotics. And so it speaks very, very strongly to the important public health aspects 
um, that that tuberculosis needs to always kind of have in mind here. And so it's fascinating, even that like the you know the numbers had nearly half before uh, Dr. Cook or Coke, if you want to say, discovered uh, the acid fast bacillus as the cause of that. Um, and so a lot of this was all public health, and then the further decline that's happened has uh, been due to um, antibiotics and public health working in strategy with each other. All right, so 10 million people develop TB disease each year, so it's still a lot. Even if it's not 2 billion, it's 10 million people. 106, uh, 1.6 million people die each year, and it's the leading cause of death due to infectious disease worldwide. So it is there, and in, in high endemic areas, needs to be constantly considered uh, for the patients that are before you, thus uh, why this is uh, an important topic to talk about for people interested in medical missions. Um, as a little bit of a context, a non-medical context for this, this was an article uh, a couple years ago by Rachel P.A. Jones. She goes by a, a blogger named Djibouti Jones. I don't know if any, anyone read Djibouti Jones. She's like a, she's a missionary. She lives in Djibouti, uh, and she writes and blogs, really great, great stuff. And she's done a lot of work, and I think ended up writing a book kind of about TB treatment there. And uh, this, the gist of this whole article is basically the way that uh, it, it appears that the social stigma of tuberculosis in modern-day Djibouti is akin to the social stigma um, of leprosy uh, in other times. Now, I would say, and I've, when I read that, I, I found it very surprising. Give me a second to adjust this because I realize it's pointing the wrong way. Uh, I found that surprising because I had not felt like there was that degree of social stigma in my tuberculosis patients that I was treating in uh, Burundi. My, my leprosy patients had that stigma, lo and behold, because they have leprosy. Uh, that still really rang true, but when it came to tuberculosis, I didn't feel that stigma. And so I started asking my students and Burundian doctors around me, like, you know, what do you think? And they don't think that um, where I am, uh, that it carries the degree of stigma as to a number of the other diseases. But I think everywhere, and certainly in certain parts of the world, uh, having tuberculosis um, certainly is a, is a least of these kind of condition that people are in. Uh, and therefore, you know, we have the opportunity as Christians to try to love and to help these people uh, in a way to, 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 to glorify God um, for these people that are in such distress. All right, so before we jump into kind of medical information about this, this is a very, very important caveat in my opinion. Um, I would guess any country that you would go to is going to have a fairly well-defined national TB program. And in a lot of countries, it's paired with a TB and leprosy program, which I think is just a, like a sort of a microbiological coincidence because they're both mycobacterium. They otherwise have very little to do with each other. Um, but there's, there's a program. Oftentimes, that program uh, provides the medications. Uh, there's usually registers where you have to register everyone who's on medicine and report that to a national registry of, um, of cases. And oftentimes, there's someone who's received some special training who's on site who kind of knows and is very familiar with this program uh, and, and make sure that the treatment going on on the ground is in line with that. So wherever you are, find out what that is and, and do it, is my advice. Follow the National TB Program. It is not going to be a perfect program, uh, but the efforts to try to coordinate the fight against tuberculosis worldwide um, is really geared towards the idea that these programs can be successfully implemented. And the last thing that we want to do as outsiders would be coming into a country and start mucking around with the treatment of TB that they're doing in that case. So generally speaking, they're all, they're all pretty similar to each other from what I've seen, uh, and I think they're all, you know, based on WHO data and other stuff like that. So they're not crazy. They should be reliable ways to treat the disease, but find out what it is and do your best to honor uh, the protocols that are in place in, in the country that you're in. 
All right, so let's talk about a couple things with regards to diagnosis. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the, the key features of older paradigms and then some things that have been put in there to change it. Um, all right, so diagnosis of TV is, is really hard um, for a number of reasons. So uh, clinically, there's a number of constitutional symptoms. In French, they refer to the three A's and the three T's, uh, which turn out to be um, anorexia, weight loss, fever, uh, weakness, cough, and, and night sweats, usually cough greater than two weeks. There are obviously other symptoms of pulmonary TB uh, that someone could have, but that kind of sums it up. The problem, of course, is that a lot of these are incredibly nonspecific, right? So, like, someone is weak. You know, like, what sick person isn't weak? Like, um, you know, weight loss, uh, almost all my patients who start to lose weight in a very malnourished place, um, you know, you get sick from almost anything, and, and oftentimes your appetite goes down and you lose weight pretty quickly. The cornerstone of... Uh, Pulmonary TB diagnosis historically has been speed of microscopy, uh, staining, and looking for acid fast bacillus on, on the slides. And this can be done for low cost. It can be on a, it, there's a broad training program, so you're hard pressed to go somewhere where they don't have someone who has the capacity in the laboratory to do this. It is operator dependent. The specificity is excellent. Obviously, if they see the mycobacterium, then you know what you've got. The big problem is sensitivity uh, for this. Um, so it's a little hard to pin down numbers on exactly how sensitive a well-prepared speed of microscopy is uh, because it's dependent on the concentration of the bacteria that's inside. But the, the rough numbers and the ones that I usually use my students is to talk about roughly two-thirds of patients with pulmonary TB would have uh, positive sputum and one-third or more of the patients with pulmonary TB disease, even if you have a well-prepared specimen, are going to have a negative smear. And that's a big challenge because that's a whole lot of patients and it's going to be really hard to control TB in your area if the only people that are getting treated are the ones that have sputum-positive TB. Uh, the bad news is a little bit worse for TB, um, which is that TB, uh, because of, I guess, a lack of uh, formation of cavitary lesions, which have a lot of AFBs in them, they have even lower rates uh, of sputum-positive uh, microscopy. So Areas of high HIV prevalence, your sensitivity is, is more like one-third instead of two-thirds. Most of the pulmonary TB disease is actually smear negative for, for this tool that's there. Um, just because I think someone would probably ask about it, and we could talk about more if you want. I, I don't have access to TB skin tests or uh, Quantifuron Gold, the, the IGRA, um, but I know that's used very commonly in the States. And... Um, it is a test for TB uh, infection and not a test for TB disease. That's the first difficulty with that. So if you're looking to see if someone's sick and they have a positive skin test or a positive uh, quantifuron, you have no idea if they have uh, disease, especially in high-prevalence areas. Uh, the other thing is that the sensitivity, and this was surprising when I was going and reviewing the literature in preparation for this talk, the sensitivity is not great, actually, for these tests. Uh, so there are a lot of people uh, whose test is negative, uh, for this, and they could still have TB uh, infection or TB disease. And I'm assuming that in the States, I don't know much about it in the States, but I'm assuming that we use these things in the States because for purposes of treating latent infection, um, it's a public health measure, and you're, you're still getting at a lot of them, and so the burden is going down. But for an individual patient, um, it has less than 80% uh, sensitivity uh, and not at all specific. All right, so what else do we have? We have chest x-rays. Uh, so here are six chest x-rays. Um, who has tuberculosis in this picture? Let's call this one, two, three, four, five, six on the bottom. Yeah, yeah, all right. So you know what? I asked my Burinian students this, and they're like, four. 
And, uh, you know, so you guys know how to take tests, right? At least American-style tests, like the ones that I devised, like this one. And so you're all over it. But, um, you know, we would love it if everyone with pulmonary TB had an x-ray like that right there. Like just big old cavern, you know. Like even if they could just have miliary disease, that would be fine. But they, they don't. And so some of these, like this hydropneumothorax, this is a big pericardial effusion from, from um, pericardial TB. You know, a big old fat whited out effusion, or even a big pneumo, because you can get spontaneous pneumos, or a pneumo from someone trying to tap the effusion. Um, there, like, yeah, all of those are sort of obvious signs. This is really the one that worries me, because that is indistinguishable, in my opinion, from bacterial pneumonia. Uh, and that's the truth of it. The signs, uh, there are a few signs for, that are specific for, for TB on chest x-ray, and almost, you know, the majority of your TB patients won't have them. Uh, and so you're stuck with, like, well, I, I can see you got something in there, uh, and I'm not really sure what it is. And even, I mean, I've read, I didn't put an example up, but I've read also that in HIV, I mean, they could have pulmonary TB with just like a normal chest X-ray. So even a normal chest X-ray is not exclu excluding TB. So, so what do we do with this, right? We have a big sensitivity problem when it comes to diagnosing TB. So it's a challenge, uh, and we'll talk about some of the new efforts to try to help that. In regards to diagnosing uh, extrapulmonary TB, extrapulmonary TB is a, is a big issue. There's lots of it, especially in kids and in immunodepressed patients. Uh, you know, the symptoms are, are basically constitutional symptoms like you had before, and then it's site-dependent. So it depends on what kind of TB you have, whether you have meningitis or adenitis or, or what have you. Um, it can affect almost anywhere in the body. Um, so, you know, I was told in med school that, you know, if you need to add something to the differential and the attending is asking you, you just say lupus because... You know, it could always be lupus, right? Um, and so if you're in Africa, then you could just, you know, well, it could be TB. And then, oh, yeah, it could be TB, you know. <laughs> Dodged it. Um, how, do you, how do you diagnose this aside from clinical exams? So there are sometimes, like, radiological findings. I mean, POTS disease, when it's like that, is something that you can see, and, and you're not doubting yourself for it. A giant pericardial effusion uh, in Africa, uh, especially if it's really fibrinous, is almost always tuberculosis. And... So I don't hesitate with these folks about whether or not I'm going to treat them. There's a small chance I could be wrong, but, like, I know what I'm going to do, and I know what I should do. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to treat them. Um, but there are a lot of other uh, sites where the extrapulmonary TB can be really hard to figure out. Can you get a sample of the fluid? You can get a sample of the fluid, uh, and everything I've seen about the sensitivity of extrapulmonary samples is terrible, like somewhere in the realm of 5 to 10% sensitivity. Almost everyone does not have that. So, again, you could do it. And if you do it safely, you can send it off. And if you get it, if you get a positive sample, you know what you got, and you struck gold. Uh, but most of the time, you're not striking gold, and, and you're left to wonder kind of what to do about this. Uh, so it's very challenging uh, diagnosis, especially depending on the site. Uh, you can do cell counts and other things besides microscopy. And uh, like for CSF, there's a number of criteria you can look at, really high-protein counts and these kind of things. The cells are almost always lymphocytic which is helpful unless you're trying to decide between that and something like cancer, uh, which is often the case when you have like a bunch of peritoneal studying or something like that because that would also be lymphocytic. So it can still be cha challenging, but sometimes tapping it and doing a cell count and doing a microscopy can, can be helpful to you. But the main thing to know about that is that getting it and having a negative for AFB means almost nothing in terms of excluding, in terms of excluding TB. Uh, John Fielder, some of you guys probably know John Fielder. He's a really smart guy about uh, tuberculosis. And one of the things that I've heard him say, which I pass on to you, which I think is really helpful, is there are very few things which can make you so chronically sick without being lethal. 
uh, as TV, especially in Africa where there's a lot of TV. So, you know, like if, if you look at someone and you think, well, I mean, they could have cancer, but how long have you been sick? Oh, two years? Well, you probably would have died by now, like if this was active cancer causing your cachexia for two years with no treatment. The fact that you're still alive would suggest that, you know, we probably have TB, and TB is the most common infection in the world. So I think that's kind of a useful thing that sometimes comes comes down to uh, looking at it and saying, well, you've been chronically ill for a long time and you haven't died, so maybe it's TB that's there. And in cases of high prevalence, I think that's a pretty reasonable thing to, to try to do. All right, so let's talk about a couple of new things. The, the, and when I say new, I'm kind of talking... It depends on on the ground. On the ground, I think a lot of these things are new within the past like five to ten years. In terms of the research, it's more like ten to twenty years for a lot of these things. So, in the world of diagnosis, the biggest thing globally, which is happening, is the is the arrival of the the gene expert test. So, gene expert is a, a PCR, a nucleic acid amplification test, which looks to detect. Um, how many of you guys have used a gene expert? Okay, um, looks to detect uh, the presence of the tuberculous bacteria. And it has a double test in there. The second test is to look for the gene which causes rifampicin resistance. Uh, so ideally, this is a test that can not only tell you relatively quickly whether you have TB, but can also tell you whether you have resistance TB because rifampin is a fairly good proxy for, for resistant TB. Not always you can have isoniazid resistance without rifampin, and this wouldn't detect that, for example. But by and large, that's kind of the reason that it was um, chosen. It is less operator-dependent. Um, you can take a sputum, you can put it in the machine, and the processing time is less than two hours. <laughs> when I first read this, which is in preparation for a talk I gave in Burundi, I was like, two hours? Are you kidding me? Like, I don't get it. I get it in like a week, you know? So we'll talk about some on-the-ground challenges in this regard. But, you know, if you got the machine, and I guess if you really know how to do it and you could control all the variables that are involved in it, the actual processing time is less than two weeks. Okay, so how does its sensitivity do? This is the question. Does it get better than the sputum that is not good enough for a lot of our patients to, to figure out? And the answer, you know, there's a whole bunch of studies on this, but to try to consolidate that down, um, this gene expert will catch about half of the cases that were missed by sputum, all right? So uh, if you take uh, HIV-negative patients, and if we use a... Uh, like a 60% sensitivity, then the 40% that aren't checked, about half of those would get detected by, by this as well. So your sensitivity would go up to about 80% instead of 60%. So what does that mean? It means good, and it means not still not perfect. Uh, still not perfect. You could still have a significant chance of having tuberculosis with a negative gene expert, but you're getting high enough where you're, you're feeling more confident if the test is negative than you had before. And it's probably better in terms of its improvement of sensitivity with HIV positive patients uh, than, uh, than with HIV-negative patients. So the fact that the sensitivity, if you recall, for HIV was even lower for sputum, uh, it, it, it jumps up a lot more. Uh, it, this is less affected by the, the problems with, uh, with quantity uh, causing false negatives with HIV. All right. Um, can you use this for extrapulmonary sites? This is newer, but there is some research, and even uh, and so these are the two best resources that I found on this. So one is a Cochrane review, which we all love. In 2018, that was done, um, and in 2014, there was this uh, meta-analysis done in the European Respiratory Journal that looked at CSF plural. This one is CSF plural in urinary uh, for GUTB, and this one is CSF plural and adenitis. So the um, you can look and you can kind of see the numbers there. Um, 
Here it's kind of the same thing. So, you know, sensitivity is looking at about 70 to 80 for CSF and lymph node. Lower for plural, lower for plural over there, but overall still pretty good. The Cochrane review did not include the adenitis data here because they didn't think that the data was of high enough quality to be able to say much definitively. Uh, but generally, when you look across the board, I would say the lesson for gene expert with extrapulmonary disease is not as good as sputum, but a whole lot better than the options that we have elsewhere. Um, so going from two-thirds to 80% with sputum, we're talking about going from 5% to, to 70% with extrapulmonary, which is, which is quite good. And so I think that encourages me a lot to try to use this for extrapulmonary uh, if possible. All right, and then now there is Gene Expert Ultra. Does anyone know if they've used Gene Expert Ultra? Um, I didn't know about this, and I don't think we have this on the ground in Burundi, but this is uh, endorsed by WHO since. So Gene Expert was endorsed by WHO since 2011, and then since 2017. Uh, the recommendation has been to use this advanced version, the GeneXpert Ultra. Um, the reason I may not know, but we may have it, is that it's actually the same machine, but they have different cartridges and new, new software. So they kind of changed out the pieces, but you don't actually need a new machine in order to transition. What is the point of this? The point of this is, again, uh, increased sensitivity. The idea is you catch about another 20% uh, of the remaining sputum negative cases that you weren't getting with, with that. So you get another kind of bump there. Um, there's less data on this, even, even less for extrapulmonary, but there was some stuff done with TB meningitis which demonstrated 71% sensitivity for Gene Expert, 90% for, for Gene Expert Ultra, and yet the Ultra compared to the old one seems to have less specificity, at least for the meningitis thing. I don't know if that's the case for sputum. Um, and I'm kinda, I thought about that, like, well, do we need this new thing if we, if we lose specificity, even if we gain some sensitivity? And personally, I'm kind of okay with that. Um, like, I'm, I'm okay because right now I'm sure I'm over-treating uh, because there's a bunch of cases in which it's really hard for me to know. And I think, generally speaking, I'd rather be over-treating some than under-treating some for, for TB. So not ideal, but, um, but that's on there now. All right, so let's get clinical on the ground for me at Kibuye. So um, rural hospital, about three hours from the, the largest city in the national lab, but we have a provincial lab that's about 30 minutes away. Uh, and our hospital is a church-run hospital, but we have an agreement with the government where we serve as a district hospital in the public system there, which is interesting and, and a lot of different dynamics. But in terms of the way that we interact with the national TB program, we function as a district hospital underneath this provincial hospital, even though we have greater capacity and they refer patients to us. But for the lab, we send our specimens there. So this town 30 minutes ago, away has a, has a gene expert machine. And they have people that have been trained to do it, and they have cartridges. So what is the first question for me? The first question is, what does the national guideline tell me to do? The national guideline tells me to send for a gene expert on a patient if I have a clinical suspicion of resistance, uh, like they're not getting better, or there's, you know, persistently sputum positive, for example. And then anyone who is on TB treatment who is HIV positive needs to get a, a, a gene expert sent. And I assume the rationale behind that is because Sputum is so bad for HIV-positive patients that send all the people that are HIV-positive. Now, there's nothing in the national protocol that says to use the national guide uh, to, to send it for extrapulmonary disease, but the guys at that lab said that if we wanted, we could send some extrapulmonary samples because um, they had extra cartridges and they weren't using them all, and so they said if you want to send extrapulmonary, you can. So said, okay, great. So we do that. So what happens? Uh, I get it. 
uh, I get the sample, and then I tell our lab that I want to send it, and they call the lab in uh, Gatega in the nearby city, and those guys say, oh, we can't do extrapulmonary. And I say, no, you can. We, we talked about this like two weeks ago. And they're like, no, I don't think we do. And so then I go to our TB guy on site, and I'm like, they're saying again that we can't send extra pulmonary. And he's like, let me call their director. And he calls their director, and the director says, yeah, like last time I, said, I can do that. And so we said, your director said again today that you can do this. And I'm like, okay, fine, we'll take it. And they're like, but, you know, who's going to pay for the transport of this sample? And we're like, I don't know. Like, how do samples normally get up there? And like, well, you know, sometimes this comes, but I don't know. Like, we got to wait. And there's lots of delays, okay? So the, the result of that, um, and sometimes the machine is broken or the cartridges are out of stock, not too recently. Um, so the result of that is normally I don't get a result for about seven days uh, on my gene experts. Um, and that's too long. And, and I usually have to go chasing it. It doesn't come to me. I have to go chasing it. And that's, that's too long to make a clinical decision for the patients for the most part. Um, so if I get it later on, it can be helpful, uh, especially if it shows a resistance or something, to kind of know what to do with the patient. But I, I really am still in a phase, even though we have this machine available in our vicinity, where i got to make decisions about whether or not the patient's going to be on TB medicines without the benefit of the result of this test. Um, so on the ground, that's kind of how it goes for now. Um, let me say one more thing about this, and then we'll move on from diagnosis, and I'll give you a chance to ask some questions about that before we go on to some treatment things. All right, urine, urine lamb assay. Uh, I have never seen this test. Uh, I learned about this for the purpose of putting this talk together because when I talked to some friends of mine in Uganda, they were like, you need to make sure you talk about the urine lamb assay. Um, so this is very interesting to me. So this is a, um, a urine test, but it's not for urinary TB. It's for anyone with TB. Uh, for one of the glycolipids in the mycobacterial cell wall, it's a test strip. Uh, it takes about an hour to do the test or less than an hour. And ironically, for reasons that I don't fully understand, I don't know if anyone understands, is really good for HIV-positive patients uh, and not for HIV-negative patients. Um, and, in fact, the more immunodepressed the patient is, this is totally in the opposite direction of everything else, the more immunodepressed the patient is, the better this test gets. <laughs> so go figure. Um, so especially severe disease uh, and low CD4 count, uh, this could even be a, a better test, a more sensitive test than a gene expert to, to detect that in people. So... What's been done with that? Well, there was a WHO statement on it in 2015, and then there was an update in 2019. And you can go and read it. But they started out in 2015 saying, uh, if you have any form of TB disease, pulmonary or extrapulmonary, with HIV, and you had severe HIV, so either measured clinically, just severe disease, or immunologically with a CD4 count less than 100, then, then do this test on them and, and use it to try to check. Um, they apparently have been liking it uh, with their data that they're collecting, and so they've expanded that now to basically say uh, if you're HIV positive and you have severe disease regardless of your HIV or severe HIV regardless of TB symptoms, do this test and, and, and look for TB in there. So that's the current statement uh, that they're saying. So HIV positive, severe TB regardless of the stage of your HIV, or severe HIV regardless of whether or not it looks like you have TB or not. They recommend doing this urine test. There is no recommendation for using this in HIV-negative patients that I have seen. So HIV-negative patients right out, which is why I'm guessing uh, that I haven't seen it in, in Burundi, perhaps, is because less of our TB is, is in HIV-positive patients, and more of it would be in Uganda, for example. Okay. Let me take a, a brief pause right there.
before we go on to a couple of treatment pearls and ask if you guys have any comments about those things. Yes? Yeah. Right. So peritoneal TB, I think, is a really hard diagnosis. Um, and I haven't seen any evidence that studied looking at peritoneal fluid uh, with a gene expert. And so this would be, as far as I know, extrapolation from the fact that on a number of other extrapulmonary sites, you've gotten good but not great uh, data that I'm assuming that peritoneal would be the same kind of thing. I do know and have read in the past that peritoneal has really terrible dispute in microscopy. So it seems to be in the camp with every other type of extrapulmonary TB in terms of liquid analysis. And so I'm extrapolating, but I would assume that it has modest you know, more than 50%, but less than 80% sensitivity with the gene expert. And I wouldn't hesitate to send peritoneal fluid in for gene expert. Rick? Um, is, I've been struggling with this. I mean, we actually have the gene expert at our hospital, but they, the lab people are always telling me they can't do the extra pulmonary because there's some special... Reagent or something? Yeah, something. Do you know a calibration? I don't. And we don't have the machine at our site. Um... I told you my little anecdote about the resistance to doing it. I don't think that has to do with it. And, and from what I've heard, again, anecdotally elsewhere, and if anyone else knows about this, please speak up. Um, I believe it does not require any special preparation. I think you just dump it in the cartridge and run it. Um, anyone else have experience with that? Okay. How about cost for running one of the astrophysics? Ours is, so cost to patient is nothing. Uh, through the National TB program there, um, but obviously that's all international donor funds. I imagine there is some cost-effectiveness study there, um, but our patients don't pay anything. Is yours? A pro is it a public machine? No, yeah, we're getting ours from the national program too. Okay, so it's also free. It's free. Yeah. I'm thinking most third world countries. Right, because I think that's how you, how you're getting it is through through a national program, which would be subsidized by aid and things. Yeah. Right. Time-consuming, but... Yeah, so TB culture, um, I have never successfully gotten a patient to have a TB culture. Yeah. Like, uh, even in Kenya, but in Burundi, they actually didn't, never did TB culture, ever. Um, like, they didn't have the laboratory set up for it. Super hard and super slow uh, as well, and yet that used to be the only way to confirm resistance. It still is, for laboratory purposes, the gold standard, so... Uh, my understanding is all these studies quoting sensitivity of new things is based on the gold standard of a of a culture, but I think the utility of culture clinically is decreasing quite a bit because we have more sensitive assays than we had before. Yeah. Have you used needle aspirates from lymph nodes? You can use needle aspirates from lymph nodes. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't know how much fluid you have to have for a gene expert to run. Probably not much. But I will say, and what I've read in the past is that. Um, the one exception to extrapulmonary having terrible sensitivity was was lymph nodes, even more so in HIV patients. That that was the one place I didn't mention it, where the data was suggesting that you know two thirds of patients that have TB adenitis would have positive smears. So it is a little bit like if you are somewhere without a gene expert, and you're thinking about you know collecting a, a fluid sample to look to just smear it and stain it. Um, lymph nodes are more useful than than CSF, than peritoneal fluid, than urine, than than pleural fluid or pericardial fluid, you know, which are all very, very low. All right, move on. 
or a yep, question? Spinal TV, POTS disease. Yeah. Just based on imaging, or uh, so spinal TB, yeah, often, often clinical, um, often clinical, and uh, this is kind of one of my like pet things or whatever. But we have lots of patients that come into us that can't walk, uh, and no one looks at their back, um, and then you know they'll be hospitalized or something, and two days later I'll be rounding, I'll look at their back, and they got this big gibbous there. It's hard to tell if you don't have it, but a lot of times you can just look at it clinically. If you could get a film, and you might be able to see something sooner. Our lumbar films are pretty low quality, so it's pretty hard to get a real good image of their vertebral spine. One more question before we go. Do you ever feel confident about a diagnosis of and all that? I would not, no. <laughs> no, I would not. Um, nor have I heard my wife, the OBGYN, talking about that. I don't know how you'd, you'd have to get, yeah, that'd be hard. Uh, salpingitis or infertility due to tuberculosis. It happens. It's described how you would figure out that someone has it is um, not something I could comment on. All right, so let's talk about treatment a bit, and then we'll get to the end of this with some questions. So uh, treatment is like a story of really good workhorse medicines that have just been working for an incredibly long time. Um, so they usually use these letter di diagnose, uh, designations, and usually it's, it's the four drugs that you might have learned in school for two months, followed by four months of, of two drugs of continuing rifampicin and isoniazid for a total of six months of therapy. Um, you could get this. Our national protocol says it, it says bone disease and meningitis because I think they're hard to sterilize. They continue the isoniazid and rifampicin for a total of a year instead of stopping at six months. And that usually is something that happens after they see me, the doctor, so I have to sort of follow those cases up specially to make sure they're not just stopped at six months like everyone else. Here's the years in which these medicines came came to us, uh, roughly. So, you know, streptomycin in 1945, pyrazinamide in the 1940s, the newest one here, rifampicin, in 1966. So we're talking 60 years that these medicines have been the mainstay of tuberculosis treatment. It really is incredible. And it's, it's also a little incredible and sad, like how little new development of TB drugs there has been um, for this really major problem. Um, one kind of thing to mention here, uh, if you're familiar in the past, there used to be these regimens of saying primary treatment and then retreatment. And retreatment of TB is usually longer, and it used streptomycin, which is only injectable. and It was kind of painful to use. Um, that is gone. I have not found that anywhere. And streptomycin, as a result of it, is pretty much gone, uh, like from the, in terms of availability. And the primary issue there seems to be, you know, one, that it wasn't all that effective. Uh, but then two, as GeneXpert has become available and you can look for resistance, uh, they've kind of done away with primary and retreatment, which is a clinical distinction, in favor of susceptible and resistant. Um, and so if they do your gene expert and you're susceptible, they just treat you with the same thing. If you're resistant, then they move on to, to the next thing there. Um, if you detect resistance, which is really hard to do, um, I'm not going to talk about that at all. I don't know anything about it because what you do is you refer to them to the National TB Sanatorium where they keep those medicines under lock and key and you don't see the patient anymore. Um, and so, you know, that's what happens there. All right, a couple uh, points here. Steroids um, have been used historically in a wide variety of different extrapulmonary TB cases, and the, the, the gist seems to be that we keep dropping indications uh, for steroids over time. And the most recent one to get dropped, so when I lived in Kenya, it was um, basically neurologic disease, so meningitis or cord compression, and pericarditis. And, and then pericarditis has, has disappeared. And it had to do largely with this article in 2014 that, that came out in New England Journal that studied this question and didn't find that it made any difference. So I, I see some hedging on the recommendations on that now, but generally speaking, pericarditis 
has been has been dropped as a reason that you would give steroids. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. So so basically, just think if the if the central nervous system is affected either because your prostheses has crimped your spinal cord or if you have meningitis, then give steroids. How much and for how long is like really vague, uh, but we could talk that if you want to. Uh, but if they don't, if it's something else, there's no indication for steroids. And then the other thing here is INH preventative treatment. So this is really interesting to me because I remember being in Kenya and, you know, looking at American guidelines for HIV and things like that and seeing these recommendations for INH preventative treatment. INH is isoniazid. Um, and it wasn't used. And it seemed to be that the, the rationale was because there's so much TB out there, um, if we treat these patients with isoniazid monotherapy, they might have disease and we're going to breed resistance by treating disease with one drug, which we should never do. And that's why we use four. Um, but in other places, isoniazid preventative treatment has been used to treat latent TB disease, and this is what happens in the States. It's one of the things that can happen in the States if you get a, a positive skin test, right? They give you just one drug for, for a while. Well, this has been studied in Africa, um, not just for people with a positive skin test, but treating all HIV patients in these high endemic areas with isoniazid monotherapy. Does it reduce the amount of uh, people who convert to TB disease in the future? And the answer is yes, and the first studies actually go back to like 20 years ago, um, and WHO has been recommending it since 2004, actually. So when I was first learning about this, it was already recommended, but I had no idea. Um, this hit the ground in Burundi in 2018, and in 2018, they started treating all of their HIV-positive patients with six months of isoniazid after a clinical, if a clinical screen was negative. So they'd ask you questions about TB symptoms, and if you were like, no, 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 then they'd say, here's your isoniazid, and you complete six months of it. So the result from the studies is that developing TB disease gets roughly cut in half. That's quite significant um, if you treat all these patients with, um, all the HIV patients with uh, isoniazid therapy for six months. So this may be new for those of you who practice in the future. It has been for me. Um, and, yeah, after reviewing it, I think it sounds, sounds great. And then this last thing, we actually don't have much time left, so I can kind of skip this a little bit. It was kind of funny. Yesterday I was like, oh, this talk's a little longer than I thought. And then Matthew Loftus, who maybe will come tomorrow, was like, oh, I hope you're going to talk about post-TB lung disease. And I was like, <laughs> no. Um, so I thought I'd throw it in there and kind of look at it. So I was like looking at this last night. But there are a lot of people, it's multifactorial, but people that have TB, the germ is gone, but the TB has destroyed their lungs in one way or another. So it's a combination of cavitation, bronchiectasis, and fibrosis. It can be obstructive or restrictive, and in terms of treatment, no one really knows what to do with it. Um, they don't know. It doesn't. There's no clear evidence that beta agonists or that steroids work, um, but they're really understudied, and so there's kind of a call out there. And this was kind of the best review that I found. If you if you wanted to look for it this year, uh, there's a call for more studies to look at this because it's estimated that over half of people that survive TB end up with some form of post-TB lung disease. And I've certainly I've seen it to the extent that they have right heart failure from. Um, you know, from fibrosis or corporal anality or something. So it's, it's a big deal. But no one, <laughs> currently there's nothing to do for it. Uh, that's, that's clear. Uh, so you'd have to just work on those individual situations. I had a couple of cases, but I'm going to stop there because we're almost done uh, with time. It's 4.53. And ask if you guys have any more uh, questions that you wanted to ask. Yeah, Rebecca. Um, I, know, I don't know how your COVID has been, but have you seen any combined TB COVID cases? I'm not aware that I've seen any combined COVID TB patients. Um, yeah, that sounds like a disaster. Um, but, you know, since we're putting them all in the same isolation ward, maybe we will, you know. <laughs> They're all kind of... Yeah. How, how were they? We actually did okay, and uh, nobody got any
would see sometimes um, in my HIV patients, um, TB and PCP together. Yeah. Yeah, and I've, I've treated a lot of TB and PCP together, and um, yeah, that's a lot of meds. That's a lot of meds and some really high doses of Actrum. So, anyone else? Want to do a case? One case? All right. All right, so 45-year-old Canyon man comes in, four weeks of increasing dyspnea, orthopnea, anorexia, and weakness, lower extremity edema, Jugular venous distension, muffled heart sounds. What does he sound like he has? Sounds like he has heart failure, even though this is a, this is a TV talk, right? Um, so we get an echo on this guy that sounds like he has heart failure, and, and, and here's his heart. So here's his heart, and this is a giant effusion around his heart. Um, we actually had a guy, you can debate the, there's debates about how much fluid you can take off, but just to wow everyone, we had a guy with a, with a big effusion uh, around his heart, and we tapped off 2.3 liters. So there you go. That was last year. Um, he felt better. Um, so, so there's some there's some stranding in this effusion here. So, so in Africa, um, a, you know, when you have an effusion this size, it's not always TB, but I kind of think you should always treat TB because <laughs> it probably is, and whatever else it is, you're you're unlikely to be able to make a lot of headway on it unless you have a really obvious alternative diagnosis. So, what should be done for this guy? TB meds for six months, steroids, it doesn't look like it. Yeah, we're dropping steroids for these things. It appears that, you know, if he's, especially if he's got tamponade or other things, we, we can't tap him if we need to. And this is obviously big. Anything else? He needs, he needs an HIV test. <laughs> um, he definitely needs an HIV test. And one of the great things about a national program is you're not going to get, H, you're not going to get your TB meds without the guy looking in his book and saying, what's his HIV status? And if you don't know, he's going to make you go do it. Um, so that's the other thing for, for him. Um, could you tap this incentive for a gene expert? You can. Like peritoneal, I have not seen any data about pericardial, but you know, extrapolation would suggest it could be helpful. All right, so, and then here, 68-year-old Burundian woman, three months of anorexia, weight loss, fever, cough, some hemoptysis, no history of, of smoking, She's got some fever. She's somewhat tachycardic. She's satting 91%. She's got some rowels on her, on her right side. She's HIV negative. So what do you want to do? Well, we check her for sputum, and it's negative. Well, now what? Well, let's get a chest x-ray on her, and we get a chest x-ray that looks like this. You know, the rowels on exam, well, it looks like an effusion over here. So, you know, and I, effusion always makes me think TB more, but as you know, like, that's not... It's not a slam dunk, right? So what do we do for her? What are the options? You can tap the effusion. Um, and if you could send it for a gene expert, it might be diagnostically useful. Um, but the plural was pretty low, 50% sensitivity. But, you know, maybe you'd get it. You could just put her on TB meds for sure. Three months. There's the, the, the old faithful of, like, give her antibiotics and see what happens to her and repeat her film, which I personally think still has a role. I mean, it's kind of all over the place with guidelines. But you could put her on antibiotics for a week and then reshoot the film in two weeks, and if her fusion is 80% gone or something like that, then you feel like you're on the right track and you might have saved your six months of TB medicines. But these, these cases are really hard to know what to do, and I think the main thing is to not abandon the idea of TB because her test is negative and, and she's HIV negative. Um, but those are all different options that you guys are bringing up that can be considered in that. All right? So um, 
yeah, that's a conclusion that kind of just restates some of those things, and here's a bunch of references you could look at if you download the slides. This has nothing to do with my book, but, you know, if you want to, like, be like, hey, what else is he write about? You could look at that uh, or our organization. So uh, thank you very much. I think I think we'll – you want one question? No, just a comment. Comment. Let's do a comment, and then we'll close. On the last case, uh, I just don't use a quinolone as your antibiotics for two weeks because quinolones yeah. treat TB. Yeah, the advantage we have of having access to very few quinolones kind of saves us from that most of the time. But, yeah, so avoid quinolones in your empiric – if you have potential pneumonia uh, for treatment of TB, because you could have a, you could be breeding resistance while you, while you get a false reassurance there. Sometimes a helpful question just for family history is anyone else coughing yep. for like months and yep. do they have TB? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, we, we don't have the capacity in our laboratory to measure protein, <laughs> and so we don't. Uh, when it is done, I think, I don't know for peritoneal fluid, yeah, I mean, it's usually, it's usually exudative, but um, I would say if you're looking at peritoneal TB, a lot of times transudative processes are further down on your differential, probably. Uh, but if you had clinical thoughts of this could be TB or it could be a transudative process, then it would be worthwhile to run those assays, I would say. Okay. All right. Well, I will, I will be up here to ask more questions, but we are out of time, and so I'll let you guys go there. Thank you very much.